Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Well, I'm going to pray again, and we're going to jump into... Uh, last week was the preface. This week is the first one. I got a title. Uh, you can thank Pastor John for this. Uh, I, w- I told you, mentioned last week, I didn't have a title yet. And uh, he picked on, up on something that I said as I was going along. And I'm, he, he shared it with me after. I was like, that's perfect. Uh, so um, this is the title for the series that we're in. Uh, Help and Hope for a Holy Life. Okay. Uh, so let me pray before we jump in. And uh, then we're going to dig into a passage of Scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, I do thank you again for this day. I thank you again for all that are here. I thank you for the testimonies, the praises that we've heard today. Thank you for those confessions of who you are and what you've done. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would continue that process even this morning as I uh, preach from your word. Lord, we just ask again for your spirit to uh, fill, Lord, specifically right now. Lord, I ask for your spirit to fill me as I preach and teach from uh, your word today. I pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to start with a quote. Um, This quote is from a guy named John Piper. Some of you know who that is. Some of you don't. It's okay. It's not important. Uh, But I am going to start with a quote because uh, he's going to say something that's been resting on my mind. uh, And this is what spurred this particular series along. Um, As you guys know, normally I preach through books of the Bible. I very rarely take some time to do a topical, but I've been planning on doing this one for several months. Okay, got to just lay this on my heart and like, yeah, this this needs to be talked about. So there's a quote from John Piper. Um, This came from one of his sermons, uh, but I found it as one of his articles uh, online. He says this, he says, vast portions of the Christian church today in America specifically, and I would agree with him, seek assurance by making holiness of life unnecessary. Vast portions of the Christian church today in America seek assurance. He's talking about, you know what he's talking about? Assurance of what? What's he talking about? Assurance of salvation, right? Assurance of your eternity in heaven. Um, by making holiness of life unnecessary. If holiness of life is not necessary to get to heaven, now the, the phrasing of this might throw some of you off. You're like, what's he saying? Okay. Uh, if holiness of life is not necessary to get to heaven, then an unholy person can have assurance that he will get there. Now, focus in on the word assurance because that's what I'm talking about. And I'll explain the rest of this as we go. Because I know you might be listening to this going, uh, Pastor Matt, we've been listening to you for 10 years, and you've been telling me that uh, unholy people like us can go to heaven. Okay? But let me continue on with the quote. John Piper says this next. He says, they, referring to the people who, who negate the importance of a holy life, he says, they don't just deny that perfection is not required for entering heaven, which Pastor John Piper and myself say, which is true. We do not attain practical perfection in this life. Okay? But they go beyond that, these, the ones that do this, they go beyond that and say that no degree of obedience or holiness or purity or goodness or love or repentance or transformation is required for entering heaven. 
Now, I'm going to come back to this in just a second. I don't want there to be any confusion because I'm not shifting gears and saying I no longer believe in the good news of the grace of God. Okay? Um, I've been preaching that for as long as I've been preaching. But the Bible also clearly teaches, and this is what we talked about last week. If you didn't hear last week's message, we do have that online if you want to listen to that. Uh, last week, there were two passages of Scripture. One specifically I preached on, one I mentioned. I want to put, pop those up there again. 1 Peter 1, 13, which interestingly enough ties in with uh, what Sunday school was about today. Peter, oh good old Peter, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. So he's thinking about grace. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back. And when his thinking of grace happens, he then says this next, As obe obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and then he quotes Leviticus 11, uh, 44, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The other passage that I mentioned last week, but I just mentioned it in passing, I think is an important one though, so I want to pop it up there again. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uh, says, Strive for, now think about what he says, strive for, strive for, and he says, peace with everyone. I'm going to set that part of it aside for a minute because that's a whole other thing. But focus in on what he says here. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. What's he say there? Without which no one will see the Lord. Consider what uh, the author of Hebrews says. At this church... No matter how difficult, how complicated, or how challenging, we will preach and teach the Word of God here. Right? That deserved an amen, didn't it? Okay? And I'm telling you right now, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, you are called to be holy. Paul, when speaking on the grace of God, and here we had uh, two references already, Paul, when speaking on the grace of God, he spent several chapters in Romans speaking on the grace of God. And I think this might tie it together for some of you already. We'll get this here. Paul, when speaking on it, he says this at the end. He's talking about how you, you, you're a sinner. That's fine. Grace is bigger. You send this much, there's more grace. We send this much, well, there's more grace. Okay? Well, I'm a really big sinner. Well, God's a really big, graceful God. Okay? And after spending several chapters talking about that, Paul gets to the end of that conversation and he says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then in response to God's amazing grace? What should we say in response to that? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, okay, if this is true, is our response ought it to be, man, since God is so gracious, I got nothing to worry about. I'm just, I can live however I want. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we, so, so I can just keep it like it's a challenge? If God's grace is bigger than my sin, I, how much sin can I do? Can I keep doing this much and you're still going to have more grace? And he says here, by no means, some of you know how it says it in the King James. What's it say in the King James? God forbid. In the Greek it says, no way. 
right? So the King James translators put in, God forbid, even though it doesn't say that God actually forbids it in the original, it just says, no way. But it was such a strong no way that the King James translators like, that's how they would have said it back then. That's how they would have said, no way. Like, we go, no way, right? Um, they would have said, God forbid. Paul says, absolutely, no, by no, there's no way, no way that you can hear about God's grace and say, since God is so gracious, I can just keep on sinning. Since I don't get to heaven by being good, then that means I can live however I want. Paul says, there, there's no computation of God's grace that you can put together that ends up with you going, then I get to do whatever I want. That's what he says here. How can, and this is, this is where it's at. I could say this next part and end the whole thing. How can we who died to sin, see, salvation is not just I get to go to heaven. Something actually changes about your very nature. How can we who died to sin live in it? That's Paul's question in response to that question. What shall we say? Should we consent to you and send grace may abound? No. The real question is, how can someone who's dead to sin, I think you could say, even ask that question? That's what Paul's point is. Back to that quote. I'm going to read the first two parts of it again, and then I'm going to finish this quote out, and then we're going to get into our passage of Scripture for the day. Quite frankly, I'm using this quote because I love it when I'm, I'm thinking something, and then somebody that I consider is smarter than me says it, because then I go, I'm not crazy. <laughs> okay, that's, that's kind of what happens. So I've been thinking what he's saying, and I'm th I've been thinking this because I'm, gonna, I'm just being completely upfront with you. There are many Christians because they latch onto the grace of God. That is precisely what they've done. They've said, because God is so gracious, that, then, I, that, then any version of me needing or feeling a need to be, they go, no, you don't need to be holy because God is gracious. Okay? Listen to what he says here. Vast portions of the Christian church today in America seek assurance Seek assurance by making holiness of life unnecessary. I'll talk about the word necessary in just a minute. If holiness of life is not necessary to get to heaven, then an unholy person can have assurance that he will get there. They don't just deny that perfection is not required for entering heaven, uh, which is true. We do not attain practical perfection in this life. But they go beyond that and say that no degree of obedience or holiness or purity or goodness or love or repentance or transformation is required for entering heaven. Heaven. They, the ones that say this, right? The ones that are saying no measure of holiness. They say that if God required, I know some of you cringe at the word required and they cringe at the word necessary. Okay, that's okay. I'd rather you do that than um, ignore it. They say that if God requires any measure of practical obedience and hol or holiness, it would do three terrible things. Number one, it would nullify grace. And that's, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you, even in this room, were already starting to think that. Matt, if you say holiness is necessary, you nullify grace. So he's a step ahead of you, isn't he? 
right? If you, if you say that's necessary, required, you nullify grace. Number two, you contradict justif justification by faith alone. Okay? That's what some people are like, wait, if you say you require, then you guys realize justification by faith alone. You guys are all good theologians in here, so you know what that means. You go, I know what that means, Matt. That's when God brought the gavel down and said, you're righteous, and that happens by faith alone. Right? You're right. It is. That's true. We're getting at here where I think so many go wrong. They'll look at what the Bible teaches, and there's some things that they come to, they go, I don't understand that, and they, negate, they, they ignore it, and they use their logic. Now, I love logic. I'm a math teacher, right? 19 years teaching math. I love logic. But you can't use, if the Bible says this and the Bible says this, you can't ignore one of them because you go, well, if this is true, then that can't be true. You can't do that. So I'm telling you right now, the Bible says you're saved by grace alone and through Christ alone, faith alone. But the Bible also says, without holiness, no one is going to see the Lord. If you go, well, those both can't be true, you're wrong because they're both in the Bible, so they must both be true. The problem isn't with the Bible, the problem is with you. You're just not understanding how those things work together. Does that make sense? Okay. In fact, that's what he says next. Um, if, if you say, well, uh, let me give the third one here. He says, if you say, well, you, got, there's some, you, you need to be holy, that's going to destroy anybody. Nobody can ever have assurance if you say you have to have holiness, right? And John Piper says, oh, sorry, get to it. Oh, I don't think I have that last slide. He says, but that is not true. I'm sure it's in here. We'll find it later. <laughs> that last slide, it's in there somewhere. Um, but that is not true. He says the Bible teaches that none of those things happen when the biblical necessity for holy living is rightly understood. Biblical necessity for holy living when it is rightly understood. There is a glorious assurance in the Christian life. But it is not going to be found by de denying the demand for holiness. Now, let me talk about, back to my title slide, let me talk about the plan. And then I'll talk about how the plan changed. Okay? The plan was, at this point, what I was going to do, because we started with holiness last week, I kind of reiterated that right now. Um, the plan was, as we move forward, I wanted to talk about two things. One, how then... Can you be holy? Okay, so Matt, you're laying out this. Okay, so let's pretend for a minute you guys are all on board with that idea. Okay, we've got to be holy. I don't know for sure how the grace and the holiness fits together, but Matt said they're both in the Bible, which they are. Don't just take my word for it, right? They are. So Matt, I'm on board, but how? how? I'm, I'm a hot mess sometimes, Matt. <laughs> I mess up a lot. How then? So what I would like to do is I'd like to talk each week in this series about how, what the Bible teaches about how to do that. And then what I was going to do, in addition to the how, was I was going to give some examples of some what's. Things that you might need to do differently. Okay? You need to be okay with that because not a single person in this room is perfect yet, right? So we're all growing in this. I was going to try to do that each week 
but I figured out this week I can't do both of them in a week. So here's where I'm, now I'm going to alternate weeks. So this week I'm going to talk about an aspect of how, and then next week we're going to talk about a specific what you might do differently, taking this week's and applying it. It's going to require you to try to be here every week. If you skip and jump, it's like missing uh, chapters out of a book, okay? You're going to need to be here for this all to make sense. I'm putting some pressure on you because if I'm going to split this idea up between two weeks and talk about the how, and the next week talk about the what, it, you want to hear the end of it, don't you? Okay. Let's talk about the how. To talk about the how this week, I'm talking about one particular idea, one particular element of, okay, Matt, we're called to be holy. That was last week. Called to be a holy people. You've talked about it a little bit this week. I'm, I'm getting on board with that. I don't know how to get from where I am to there. How do we do this? I'll tell you one important aspect. There's several we're going to talk about. The first one I want to talk about is this idea of repentance. Who's heard that word in the church before? When John the Baptist shows up on the scene, the Bible summarizes his preaching with a phrase. It wasn't the only thing that was coming out of his mouth, but it's summarized in a phrase. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Bible then goes on to say that when Jesus then showed up on the scene in the New Testament, it says his preaching could be summarized, and it summarizes it in that phrase. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You go through the Old Testament, you hear Old Testament prophets again and again and again, saying what? Repent. Repentance is an important aspect of going from where you are to where you ought to be. I'm going to teach you this not by giving you the five steps of repentance. Some of you were wanting that. Okay, Matt, give me the eight steps of repentance. I'm not going to do that. What I am going to do is I'm going to show you repentance from a poem that King David wrote. What it's going to do is not give you steps to repentance, but it's going to paint a picture of repentance. So the first one is going to be the first swash of the paintbrush. What does a repentance look like? And you're going to look at David. Now, for those of you that don't know, King David, the psalm I'm going to read is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written right after something happened in David's life. For those of you that do not know, let me give you the basics. David was a king after God's own heart. But he had this point in his life where he, during a war that was going on, instead of being out on the battlefront, was home in his castle. One of his chief soldiers, which you actually hear his name mentioned, was Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was listed in his, like, like, like his superhero soldiers, right? His super soldiers. Yeah, this, this troop. Uriah the Hittite was one of those soldiers. Uriah the Hittite was out on the battlefront where probably David should have been. Uriah's wife, you may have heard her name before, was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was on her roof, which is, sounds strange to us, but this would have been more common in those days, was on her roof bathing. David, from his castle, looks out and sees and doesn't look away, but desires what he sees. He sends someone, because he's king and he can make things happen, 
he sends someone to bring her from that house to his place, to his chambers. There's an affair. He sleeps with her. She, from that, gets pregnant. She sends word to the king and tells him, David, man after God's own heart, tries to cover up his sin. He first brings Uriah the Hittite from the battlefront and tries to get Uriah, go spend some time with your wife. You see, what's he doing? He's pregnant. If I can get him to go in, go in there, spend some time, Uriah. Uriah won't go home. He remains at the king's gate because he doesn't feel that it's right that he's here when his his the other his brothers in arms are out on the front. David, oh man, composes a note that Uriah himself delivers, sealed, to the commander. The commander reads the note. The note says this, share a, a signal that you can give with everybody in this troop that at a certain time you're all going to pull back in the heat of battle. Share it with everybody but Uriah. And at the right time, give the signal so that everybody will pull back. King David did this. It happens. The signal is given. Uriah, not knowing that that's what the signal meant, sees all of his brothers pull back, but doesn't know what's happened, can't respond quick enough. Uriah is killed in battle. David then even though the God and Scripture never supports this idea of having multiple marriages, brings her in, makes her his wife. Sin covered in David's mind. But not to God. God knows. Maybe nobody else does, but David and Bathsheba, God knows. And God sends his guy. Now, you think sometimes that when I'm up here, I pinpoint you. I think he was looking at me. Yeah, I know you guys think that. But Nate, God actually sent Nathan directly just to David. Tells him a story and then turns around. I wish he had time to get into the whole thing because I love that part of it. But then at the end, he's like, you're the man. And David realizes I'm guilty. David repents so much to that story. I wish I could really just dig into. But I want to get to what David wrote afterwards. Psalm 51. So let's take a look at Psalm chapter 51. Now the first part, the first brush stroke of repentance that you're going to see from David's brush, that we're going to see as the Spirit of God inspired David to write this poem, the first big brush stroke you're going to see is this. It's going to be an acknowledgement. David is going to acknowledge the character of God. So when you're asking, and I know that some of you have asked this question before, what does repentance really look like? It starts off, I believe, 
Not it says step one, but just as the first understanding. If you're going to grasp what this means, it starts with an acknowledgement of the character of God. I want you to listen for something when I give the first two verses of Psalm 51, David's poem of repentance. And I want you to listen for things that have to do with God's character. I think you're going to hear mercy. I think you're going to hear forgiveness. You're going to hear cleansing. Listen to what it says. David writes. You see him pinning these words in his remorse. I mean, you guys know what that feels like, right? When your sin that you thought was covered gets pointed out and you suddenly know it. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He, God, because of His character, is our hope of repentance. You must acknowledge the character of God. Let me break this down a little bit. Because the word repentance, even though not mentioned directly here, the word repentance in the New Testament means a change of mind. I'm telling you, the way that your mind must change is how you view and see God. It is His character, not you, that gives you hope of repentance. He starts off, have mercy on me. Oh God, have mercy, and notice what it's according to. Have mercy on me. Look, God, have, maybe you've done this. When, you, when you're trying to turn from your sin, and, and then you go, I'm, I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. And then you, then you go, okay, God, have mercy on me. And somewhere in the back of your head, the rest of that sentence is, because according to, look what I'm doing. True repentance does not do that. True repentance says, have mercy on me, oh God, according to, what does he say? According to what I'm doing? No, according to your steadfast love. Let it be measured up according to your love. The word steadfast means unfailing, unfaltering. According to your abundant mercy. David hopes for mercy not because of what he's getting ready to do or what he's going to... In fact, I, I love this very idea, this very concept of starting here because so many of us, we wait to ask for mercy after we've done some good things. You ever do that? I, surely I'm not the only one. I thought there'd be a couple of head nods. I've done that. Sin, need to pray for mercy, but I, I want to read my Bible first. Or even like when I pray, have you ever done this? You go, okay, I need to pray for forgiveness. But then you sit I'm going to read to pray. But then you go, I can't just start with that, God. I'm going to start with how great you are. So then you get, I'm going to pray. Lord, you're so great and merciful and gracious and kind. And then you have to go down this big, long list. And what you really want to do is say, God, have mercy on me. Well, I'm telling you right now, that's where you can start. And that's where you ought to start. Do not try to earn his mercy. Give up on that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to who you are. Acknowledge the very character of God that your only hope for mercy is the fact that he is gracious. 
He is loving. But David hopes that God's mercy will accomplish something. You see that right off in the second verse. Oh, I th- you, okay, there's a few in this room I know are going to love what I'm getting ready to do next. I'm going to tell you some words and what they mean. Some of you love that. Ooh, yes, breaking out your pencils. Take some notes. Blot out my transgressions. The word transgressions focuses on the fact that David recognizes he was rebellious to God's law. He rebelled against God's authority. The word transgression emphasizes that aspect of sin. And to blot out literally means obliterate or exterminate. I like that one. Exterminate my rebellion, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity is a distortion of what ought to be. This is an interesting word for sin because it simply focuses on the fact that what I should be, I'm not. Iniquity realizes I'm not what I ought to be. Are any of us what we ought to be yet? Wash does not mean in this particular case, wash like wash with soap. It's a word that is used because with cloth making, one of the aspects with cloth making, I don't know anything about cloth making, but it was called a fuller. Um, a fuller would, would, would trample or press the cloth to get the oils out of the cloth as they're, they're cloth making. I don't know what I'm talking about, okay? I, don't, they, I read this, okay? This is what they would do. And so one of the, the, the word here, to, to cleanse, to get the oils out, one of the ways they would do that in Bible times is to tread on it. So this word wash is literally the word trample. That's interesting, isn't it? I like this because what what David is saying, he's not focusing on just um, cleanse my my record because I feel guilty right now. Can you just wash that off? He's actually saying, can you squeeze it out of me? Right? Trample. Tread. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin. The word sin, the word sin means to miss the bullseye. Miss the mark, literally. But miss the bullseye. And some of us, we think sin, we just, well, sin is just missing the bullseye. Cleanse means to purify both ceremonially, ceremonially and literally to be made morally clean. David's hope of restoration with God is entirely rooted, if you pay attention to this verse, rooted in God's character. And he's hoping that God's character, his mercy, will accomplish something in his life. So when you repent, begin here, not as step one, but it's the first way that you view it, the first brush stroke of repentance. Change how you view God's role in your cleansing. You're entirely dependent on Him. And your hope is not just for a clean record from this day past, but you're hoping for a changed life going forward. Your only hope is Him and His character. Next, number two, You need to reckon, the second brush stroke of repentance, you need to reckon with 
the character of sin. So you're going to acknowledge the character of God. You next need to reckon the character. You know what the word reckon means? Uh, to, to reckon something, if you're an accountant, it's like to add up, to calculate, right? There, there's a reckoning to be had. You need to reckon with the character of sin, your sin. Listen for, in this next part, listen for the reality of sin to David, to God. Listen for who sin is ultimately against and listen for the place where sin originates. Verses 3 and 4 say this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now, some of you know exactly what that is. You don't have to work on this one. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verses 5 and 6, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, let's look at all that. Reckon with the character of sin. In verse 3, David knows his transgression. His sin is ever before him. There's no hiding it under the rug. A change of mind here, right? You can't hide it. Reckon with it. Face it. It's ever before you. He knows as well. Now, wait a minute. He sinned against... Did David sin against Uriah? Think back to that story. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Did he sin against the commander of the, the army? Did he sin against all those... That band of brothers that were out there, Uriah's... Right? Other, the other soldiers? Did David sin against the whole kingdom for being that kind of king that would do that kind of thing? Yes. But David knows that ultimately your sin is against God. And so he acknowledges, this doesn't deny what he's done against the people, but he recognizes that ultimately it's against God. If you're ever going to experience repentance, a change of mind, you must see your sin as against God. He is a ruler of the universe. And the creator of you, and the decider of right and wrong, when you choose to go your own way, you have sinned against God. But there's no one to blame besides himself. He traces it right back to himself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. It's my very nature. His own character God's character, loving and merciful. My character, I'm a sinner from birth. But real change, he begins to realize, is not going to be, and must not be, simple cleaning of the register. Right? This gets back to the heart of what we talked about at the beginning. If you view salvation as I've got this big whiteboard that every time I send, it's, I've written with marker on it, but it's dry erase. Praise the Lord. And Jesus came and he went, <laughs> right? One of the problems with viewing salvation that way is because then the next time you sin, you feel like you just went, <laughs> and then you got to go, Jesus, forgive me. And he's got to come back and go, right? 
And I see people living in that. So, so we're giving up the thought of saving ourselves, but we're seeing now salvation is bigger than just wiping the whiteboard off, but it's changing who we are at the very core of your being. I was born a sinner, but he's done something. David, how did, or I'm sorry, how did uh, Paul put it in the New Testament? He says, how can those who died to sin live in it? Real change is interchange. So maybe I need to put it this way. Reckon with the character, not just of sin, but of you. Now, the last part's going to go quickly because I know some of you are watching the time. Aren't you glad you didn't decide to do both parts in one week? This last part's going to go quickly. We're going to go through the rest of his poem because I want you to see that as you acknowledge God's character and you reckon with who you are, you're going to see that gospel flushed out in every aspect of just all these different parts of who you are. So you l- listen to what David says next. Verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop. You might, hyssop, what's hyssop? Hyssop? Hyssop was used, kind of like a broom type thing. Hyssop was used to sprinkle blood on the altar. David knew that blood was necessary for real cleanliness before God. What he didn't know is how God was going to ultimately accomplish that. You and I know that. Purge me with hyssop. The blood is necessary. We know who shed that blood that was pictured in the Old Testament now made real for us. Who was it? Jesus. Purge me. The blood of Christ. I'll be clean. I'll be washed whiter than snow. And then he turns this way. Now you're going to start to see repentance happening. And this is why I said this is not the steps to repentance. That if there's anything that you can quote unquote do, you, you start by just, okay, God, I know who you are. I know who I am. And you cry out to God like David, have mercy on me. I can't make repentance happen, God, but you can. And you see in David the, the re- end result being, being flushed out. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken. Hey, I'm telling you what, it's got to go there. You can't be trampled, that type of washing, without some things getting cracked. But those who know and understand repentance go, Lord, let those bones you break. Break them, God. Break them. Because I know you're going to heal them. The bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. He's still hoping for that forgiveness. Or don't, don't be you thinking about those things. But I know if it's really going to happen, it must happen in the inside. Create in me a clean heart. You've heard this before. Wait a minute, Matt. That's a song. How did David get that? Oh, I don't know if you know that. It came from David. Um, <clears throat> create in me a clean heart. Some of you are humming it in your heads now, right? Oh, God. Renew 
a right spirit within me. You see, see, you see all these little facets of, of repentance happening now in David. He's right, create me clean. He's still, he's still calling out to God, still prayer. Do you still sense the prayer aspect of this? Create me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. But the whole feel of it's changed. Not my sin is ever before me. But now it's like, it's like the eyes have, have lifted. Lord, create me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. I'm telling you right now. Some of you long for joy. You will not find joy by wallowing in your sin. You will find joy when God breaks you and brings you back. When He tramples you but restores you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And then it'll happen. When true repentance unfolds in your life, you're going to start going, do you know about Jesus? I don't have to get up here and say, all right, guys, go be witnesses. I, I can do that, and I should. But if true repentance happens, and you grab a hold of the grace of God and you see what it does to you as your mind changes and the Spirit of God dwells in you, you will suddenly find yourself doing these sorts of things. Then I'm going to start teaching transgressors your way. See, some people go, David, who are you to teach anybody anything? Think about what he did. David goes, I know. And God knows. And I can't describe the regret. But I also can't get you to understand the joy of his salvation. That a guy that sends one of his most faithful men into battle to be killed to cover up the fact that I slept with his wife The fact that I know that God has mercy on me, I can't shut up about it now. And this hope is for you as well. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I know some of you have been here because I hear you behind me. It's a joyful noise. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. My mouth opens up, praise is coming out. For you will not delight in sacrifice. The religious part, if that's all you think salvation is, will not cut it. God will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are ultimately what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Acknowledge 
the character of God. Not as step one, but just as a mental starting place. Your only hope is God. He's merciful. I don't care how horrible you've been. God is abounding in mercy. Acknowledge that. He's your only hope. And you know what he does with sinners? He cleans them up. It might look like trampling of cloth, but he does it. Reckon with the character of who you are. Give up on the fact that you think you can earn salvation by any direction that might take. You can't. But I want you to rely on the reality of the gospel because the gospel is so powerful that it takes sinful people like David and it ends up having them write glorious poetry that we read a few thousand years later about what repentance looks like. That could be you as well. When you come to him, acknowledge who you are, reckon with who, right? Reckon with who you are, acknowledge who he is, reckon with who you are. God can work that amazing gospel in you. Rely on the reality of the good news. <clears throat> when we partake today, I want to encourage you to do that exact thing. I know that next week I'm going to get into some specifics. But I wouldn't be surprised if this week, as I was talking, there were some things that you've been doing and been living and been acting that you know and God knows it's sin. And maybe you thought I did because you felt I was looking at you. I wasn't. I'm not Nathan the prophet. I don't know what you did. Maybe there's some things. You're, you're sitting there going, I thought he knew. I didn't know. But God knows. I'd like you today to start right now in your hearts by start saying, Lord, my only hope of salvation from my sin is you. My only hope. I'm relying and banking, and I, I'm going to call out today for your mercy, God, because I believe you are merciful and loving. Start there. But then reckon with who you are as well in this scenario. You're a sinner. You've got no one to blame but you. You're a sinner. You're not going to be able to clean yourself up. You've tried that. It didn't work, did it? Have you tried by willpower to get yourself back on track? Has it, has it worked very well, willpower? Doesn't work for me. Your only hope for change is something needs to happen in here. Because I was born in sin. So again, go back to God. Acknowledge Him. I'm a sinner. Acknowledge him. I'm a, I'm, I can't do... Acknowledge him. He's gracious. He cleanses. He treads out. 
He washes people. He cleans them up. He purifies them. That's what he does. Maybe bring some of those specifics before God as we pass this out and you're holding that bread. Maybe even bring up some, some specifics. Lord, I've, I've done this. I've done this this week. I've done this this month. I did that this morning. Lord, have, please have mercy on me. You're my only hope. I'm a sinner. I did this. Lord, please have mercy on me. Matt, there should be some more steps here because so how do we make the repentant? You can't. But he does it. All you can do is call out to him. So hold that bread. Lord, I did this again. You have any of the sins that are like that? Be, you can be honest. Nod your head yes if you know what I'm talking about. You got any of those sins that you go, I have tried 2,728 times to repent of this sin and I keep doing it again. You better hope he's merciful. You know what he is. Do it again. Again today. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I can't stop. You can stop. <laughs> you can change me. I'm, I'm banking everything on it. I'm banking everything on it. I'm going to have the guys come up. I want to pray for this bread in this cup. We're going to distribute. Thank you. Jesus lived that perfectly righteous, holy life, obeyed all of the law, fulfilled all the prophecies, and then gave up his body for you. He says to his disciples, then he says it to you now today, when he breaks that bread, he says he took it with his disciples and broke that bread, right? He says, this is my body, which is for you. You picture him doing that? Taking that bread, passing around. This is my body. This is for you. We don't need the hyssop anymore, sprinkling of the blood. I'm, I'm getting ready to do it. He said, this blood that I'm going to shed, this represents the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. So I want you to picture these things. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know our only hope is you. We pray now for repentance. Lord, we know that there's going to be some work to be done in this repentance category, but Lord, we know it only happens because of you, through you, by you. Our hope, Lord, today is that you're merciful. David cried out for mercy. Lord, if he can do that, so can I. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me from my iniquities, my transgressions. Wash me so I'll be clean. Lord, bless this bread and this cup today. In your name I pray. Amen.